Good morning. Uh, I'm CJ. I'll be reading Romans 9, 1 through 5. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is the very word of God. Last week, as we wrapped up, um, really, our several-week-long study of Romans chapter 8, uh, we were getting pumped up about what the message of the gospel, the reality of the gospel for you and me means for our daily lives. Christian assurance matters, to be able to walk into any given day or any circumstance with a confidence that God is for us and not against us, that God has given to us not only his son, but with him everything makes all the difference for how we live our lives. All of us as human beings need hope. I was talking to one of our members this week about that. We need, we need something to look forward to, something to hold on to in the midst of difficult days. But we don't just need hope. We, we need real hope, right? We need solid hope. We, we need a firm foundation. When it comes to the Christian faith that we just confessed in the creed, are we just wishing? Are we just hoping in ourselves that these things are true? Are we really hoping in God, the God who is there? Do we know who this God is? Do we know why we could ever trust him? When the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, he said, this is what most commentators will say is his thesis statement for the whole book of Romans. It's in Romans chapter one. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he said this, to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. What did he mean when he said that? What does he mean that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the non-Jews, which I'm going to guess is most of us. And by the way, was most of the audience to whom Paul first wrote the letter to the Romans. The reason that Paul says this and the reason that he's going to now take three chapters to deal with that part of the gospel that we often don't include or don't talk about much is because, catch this, Christian assurance or Christian hope, 
depends upon seeing how God has kept his promise to Israel, to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Christian assurance, Christian hope, the whole foundation of the Christian gospel depends upon seeing how it is that God has kept his promise to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So has he? Are you sure? There is, after all, reason to doubt this. And Paul knows that if his gospel is going to explode into the world in which he lived and into our world today, then we have to see it. We have to see, first of all, the problem, because a lot of us don't even know there's a problem here. So you got to first see the problem, the problem of Israel. Second, you've got to enter into the sadness of the problem. And then third, you need to grasp the hope that remains in the midst of that sorrow. You've got to see the problem here. You're not going to understand the gospel. If you don't see the problem of Israel, we'll we'll talk about this first. Second, enter into the sadness of that problem. And then lastly, grasp the hope that is right there, right there in the sadness. So let's begin our study this morning. And when I say our study, I'm talking about Romans 9, 10, and 11 I want us to pull back a little bit with a wide-angle lens on these three chapters. You see, if you're reading along in Romans and you move from, as we're doing right now, from chapter 8 to chapter 9, you can't help but notice the dramatic shift in tone that takes place in the transition. Just look back, if you weren't here with us at all last week, just scan the last part of Romans chapter 8 for a moment and then... Remember that there's no chapter divisions when Paul actually wrote the letter and just move on to chapter nine. You can't help but notice the celebratory celebratory words of chapter eight now give way to the sad and melancholy words. In fact, the jarring words of chapter nine. And it makes you stop and think, what is going on here? Why does Paul have to write this chapter and the next two that come after it? Romans 9 through 11 are a clear unit, but what are these chapters about and why is this subject so important? Why should you even care about Romans 9 through 11? These are probably the most neglected uh, chapters in Romans, probably along with Romans chapter two, I would say, for most Christians, we're not familiar with this. We're not tracking with Paul as he writes here. So I want you to see the problem here. I want you to see the problem that Paul is dealing with and see why it is a problem for the gospel, for the Christian faith. Okay, so it takes a few verses to find out what it is that has saddened Paul. And even then we have to read somewhat between the lines. In verse three, he says somewhat strangely, for I could wish 
that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, we're going to look at this strange wish that Paul mentions here a bit later. But I simply want to note here that what he says he could wish for himself is what has caused him to write and what he thinks about his fellow Jews. At least he must mean a great many of them, probably the vast majority of them in his day. He says, he implies, they're cut off from the Messiah. They are accursed. Now, that word accursed is the Greek word anathema. You've probably heard that before. It's used five other times in the New Testament, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was the Bible of the first century. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it shows up 20 times. It translates a Hebrew word which refers to something that has been banned from ordinary use and is marked out for destruction. You'll remember perhaps when Israel conquered Jericho, God put a ban. Remember that? He put a ban on all of the possessions in the city. Nobody could take anything Everything was to be burned up. And of course, we got a guy named Achan who doesn't follow along and a lot of trouble comes to Israel for it. Remember that story? That ban is the word that Paul is using here. He's using the word this way. He is sad. He sees a problem because he sees so many, the vast majority of his fellow Jews are under the ban. They are marked for the judicial wrath of God. And the reason that this is so, he says, is because they are, at this time, cut off from Christ. Christ there, of course, is the word for the Messiah. They are cut off from the anointed one, the promised one to come. They are severed and separated from the Savior, and that's why they are accursed, why they're under the ban. Now, in the next chapter, chapter 10, Paul tells us his heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. So, Paul does not think the current situation is beyond hope. He does not think that the story of Israel is over just yet. Indeed, he's going to go on to demonstrate in the next three chapters the way in which, listen to these words, Romans 11, 26. This is where we're heading. This is at the end of this section. He's going to go on to explain how it is that, quote, all Israel will be saved. And then, He will end again with a celebratory tone and doxology, some of the loftiest language in all of Romans at the end of chapter 11. Of course, there's a lot of ground for us to cover in between chapter 9 and the end of chapter 11, and there's a reason why we need to sit with Paul right here in this problem for just a bit longer. You see, here's the issue. The problem of the unbelief of so many of his fellow Jews raises a bigger question. This is why it should matter to you. Has the issue of Jewish rejection of the Messiah as a whole meant that God's word, that God's promise has failed? That should matter to you. If if the God of Israel is a God who cannot keep his promise, 
That should concern you, Christian. And Paul's answer throughout is to prove, of course, that no, no, God has not failed, but you've got to feel the weight of the question for just a moment. For some of us, the reason the gospel, the reason the Christian faith just doesn't matter that much, like yawn, whatever, is because we're not seeing the problem. Paul has, by the way, already touched on this question earlier. You might recall in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. But there he did so just briefly. And now in Romans 9 through 11, he takes it up more fully. Because the word of God here taken to mean the promise of God in the Old Testament. Specifically, the promise God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was, and you got to know this, you can't make sense of your Bible if you don't know Genesis 12. It's the promise to bless their descendants and then through them to bring blessing to the world, to the entire cosmos, to you and to me. That's the promise of God in the Bible. Do you get it? This is the great biblical story, all pointing to, Paul has already said, the surprising climax of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So far, so good. We kind of know where it's all going. But the problem is, at this point, for Paul, as he writes Romans, most of the descendants of the patriarchs, at this point, have rejected Jesus as Messiah. So the promise that God has made then, even if God has demonstrated his own faithfulness in Jesus, the promise seems to be on the verge of failing because Israel had, by and large, remained unfaithful to God by rejecting their Messiah. It will not do to say, well, doesn't matter to me. God tried to keep his promise but Israel wouldn't let him do it. So God is off the hook. The problem is theirs. That's not going to work because God's promise to Abraham was unconditional. It is up to God then to bring it to fruition, whatever the obstacles. So again, the greater problem that Paul is dealing with in Isaiah, in Isaiah I don't know why I keep saying Isaiah, in Romans 9 through 11, the greater problem is does the God that you worship keep his promise? Does he really? You can see why then the problem here is one that must be solved for anyone who looks to the Bible to find any real hope. The promise of God to you depends upon the salvation of Israel. So if in fact God has not kept his promise to Israel, then how, pray tell, can you be sure God will keep his promise to you? How can you be sure that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ, Romans 8, 39, if this is a God who has not been faithful to the very people that he entered into covenant with in the first place? So hope is powerful. Perhaps we should say it the other way. The lack of hope is dreadful and even deadly. And while false hope might suffice for a while, real hope needs a firm foundation to rest on. And that's why Paul has to address this problem right here in the letter to the Romans. So now, if you can see the problem that Paul is dealing with, 
in these three chapters, then we who believe the Bible and are looking for real hope in the biblical story, we can't just hold this problem at arm's length. The problem is one that you can't just see. Oh, that's interesting. Nice little theological point. You've got to feel the problem, Christian. You've got to let it set in. This is a problem that hits in the heart. Hits right in the heart. Again, just notice the emotional way that Paul writes in this chapter. Verses one through three are the kinds of words that if you were sitting in the room when Paul wrote this, you'd get a little bit uncomfortable. Paul is not giving lip service to the sad state of Israel. He is in agony. He's in agony about it all. He has laid awake at night, undoubtedly weeping. And his tears are the tears, not just of someone who is sad, but of someone who's confused. Some of you can relate. You've laid awake at night, wondering, is this Christianity thing really gonna work? I thought God promised, wait a minute, what did he promise? Paul is confused. He sees the promise. He is not confused about what the promise is, but he's confused. He's sad because he's not just mourning over the situation. He's troubled by it. Is it okay to have doubts as a Christian? Paul has had plenty. He has wrestled with God about this issue. Why does he feel this way? He says, great sorrow, sadness, but unceasing anguish, trouble, confusion. Why does he feel this way? And how might you and I enter into that sadness with him? It would be easy to suppose that Paul's grief is explained by the fact, well, that he himself, of course, is a Jew like the ones he's sad for. When Paul speaks in verse three of his brothers, he writes about his kinsmen according to the flesh. And then he says in verse four, they are Israelites. So he's clearly talking here about ethnic Jews, not Gentiles. The issue throughout these chapters is what about the unbelief of, by and large, God's own elect people, the Jewish people. And for Paul, these are his people, right? He's one of them. So naturally, we might say, oh, okay, okay, I understand. Like, Paul's concerned because these are his people. And I'm sure there's a truth to this. And that would be simple enough if that's all that it was. We would not begrudge Paul for feeling this way. But why is he writing to Gentiles to tell them about his great sadness? Again, his original audience Most scholars will tell you, by and large, the church in Rome was made up mostly of Gentiles. So we're going to miss the point if we stop right here and say, that's why Paul writes this. See the emotion? He's just, he's troubled for his own countrymen, and so should we be. A lot of Christians do that with Romans 9. If you think that what Paul is doing here, if you think the primary meaning, the reason it's in your Bible is because you and I, predominantly Americans, are supposed to feel like this for the state of our country, 
just like Paul is heartbroken for the state of Israel, you've missed it all. If you're looking for a biblical warrant for a sense of God and country, you've come to the wrong text. God has not promised the United States what he promised to Israel. But you make a similar mistake in the opposite direction if you take chapters like this to mean essentially, well, this is how we ought to feel about anybody who's cut off from Christ, about the the general sense of lostness or unbelief in the world today. Again, that's also true, of course. And by the way, just as an aside, there's no way you can read what Paul writes here and accuse him of being a universalist when we see that he believes that anyone who rejects the gospel that he preaches has no hope of finding some other way into the eternal kingdom of God. But Paul's concern is not so much for just any unbelieving person. Again, his concern is for an entire race of unbelieving people. He calls them his brothers because he shares their ethnicity, but he calls them then his kinsmen according to the flesh to distinguish them from his Jewish and Gentile siblings in Christ. He's not speaking of all unbelieving people, but of unbelieving Jews. It's their unbelief that is causing Paul so much agony. Now, again, we're talking about the overwhelming unbelief of Jews in his day, the unbelief that Jesus of Nazareth was their promised Messiah. Like ancient Israel shunning God as their true king and saying, give us a human king like all the other nations. Paul is alarmed. He's alarmed because of so much opposition that his own loyalty to Jesus is bringing from his own people. This is shocking and troublesome to him as it ought to be to us because the gospel Paul preaches is not a new religion. It's, it's the same Jewish story through and through. It's in line with Israel's story in the Old Testament and how it is that in Jesus, Israel's story has come to its long-awaited fulfillment. So Paul reflects in verses four and five on many of Israel's great privileges that by their rejection of Messiah, they are in danger of throwing away. Just consider for a moment what God had given to Israel. Verse four mentions six things. Verse five adds two more. Now the six in verse four appear to be chosen intentionally with an eye to grammatical and conceptual structure. That is to say, The sounds at the end of the first three words in Greek correspond to the sounds at the end of the last three. All that to say that Paul is giving us two couplets of three. And so let's consider them together. The first set corresponds to the second set. In other words, if you're following on your Bible, the six things in verse four, the first one matches the fourth, the second, the fifth, the third, the sixth. Are you with me? So that's how I'm looking at them right now. So take a look. It was Israel. Just consider who these people are. Who do, why should we care? Why, why should this matter to you? Here's why. It was Israel as a people that God had given the adoption and the giving of the law. Now, the adoption refers to the fact that God chose the nation of Israel to be his own. He calls them in Exodus 4.22, his firstborn son, It's that kind of familial context that God had given Israel his law. The law of God, 
you probably are familiar with it as the Ten Commandments, but it's more than that. Exodus 20, the law of God was given in the context of a new family. So wheelers adopt a couple kids, they come in, and whether they have it like written in stone or not, there's some rules. There's a way of being a wheeler, right? Okay. And that's true of all of your families. The, the law of God is given in the context of a new family. And the expectation, by the way, of God's law, I know we're a bunch of rebels here as Americans, mostly we don't like rules and all that. But, but do you understand that the idea of these rules, the way of being a part of God's family, the whole intent of that was to so discipline and shape a people that everyone else looking at this new family would say, Deuteronomy 4, 6, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. <laughs> After all, Moses pointed out, what great nation, this is Deuteronomy 4, 7, and 8, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? You see, Israel, chosen by God to be his special people, given his law to shape and form them into the family of God, was to be the kind of people that everybody else would say, I want to be a part of that family. That's an amazing family. That's the envy of the world. That's the privilege of Israel. Now look at the next, the next two were, uh Privileges go together. The glory and the worship. The glory calls to mind, again, the visible sign of God's presence in the Old Testament. By the way, if Paul writes Romans just assuming you know your Old Testament. So if you're confused by Romans, it might be because you don't quite grab the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the glory is the visible sign of God's presence, oftentimes like a pillar of cloud or a fire, what the rabbis would later call the Shekinah. It was Israel's possession of the Shekinah, the objective evidence that this God was near to them, was present with them, dwelling in their midst, dwelling in the tabernacle first while they're in the wilderness, then in the temple as a permanent structure. And so the worship then, you see how it goes together, the, the worship denotes the entire temple service, the, the true worship of the true God that was a stark contrast to the idolatrous practices of pagan worship. Again, this is a great privilege to be part of this family. Israel has the true God with them, objective evidence of it, the Shekinah, the literal evidence that God was near to them, along with access to him, full enjoyment of communion with him. That's what worship is all about, by the way. Again, the envy of the nations, because their gods regularly and spectacularly failed. So then we find linked together the last two, the privileges of Israel's possession, the covenants and the promises. These two words interpret each other, the various covenants that God gave to Israel, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic covenants, plus the prophesied new covenant. These covenants contain spectacular promises, almost unbelievable promises. 
And as we see them being fulfilled in biblical history, it's clear that these people who receive the promises of God are as privileged and blessed as anyone could possibly be. This is what a privilege of Israel. I mean, you're, if you're reading the Old Testament, you're just thinking, I want to be a part of this group, this family. But of course, the privileges of Israel also serve to highlight the tragedy that Paul feels in, his, in this story. Verse 5 adds, to them belong the patriarchs. Again, this is just a reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How the descendants of these three men are privileged will be spelled out at the end of, of, Roman, of this section, Romans eleven twenty eight. The privilege of being an Israelite is the privilege of being a part of a people, the people of Israel to whom the Old Testament had guaranteed so much, had guaranteed, can we say it, salvation. But what do we mean by salvation? This is where we get so, so offline from what Paul understands the gospel to be. Salvation means not just heaven. If by heaven you're thinking of this disembodied place that when you die, you go to to live forever. And I'm confident that that's what some, many, most of you have always thought salvation's all about. But that is not what Israel understood salvation to be about. It's not what the gospel is primarily about. This is a message. This is the promise. The promise of salvation is the promise of, yes, life after death, but more so a life after life after death, a resurrection of the body to live eternally heaven on earth. That's the great promise made to Israel. And if you're a Christian, that's the promise that's made to you. So again, that's quite the promise. I mean, I'm telling, I talk to people all the time and it's like, yeah, yawn, Christianity. It's all about this go to heaven when you die, this disembodied place that none of us know anything about anyway. No, no, that's every religion in the world is about something like that. Christianity is a message about resurrection. It's the message that this life, this in your body matters. And indeed God intends to live forever. So at the end of verse five, by the way, that promise becomes more visible once we see who Israel's Messiah is. Because at the end of verse five, Paul adds, it was from their race, according to the flesh, that the Christ came, the Messiah came. The Messiah, the savior of the world, the one who's going to put into place that great promise to Israel. Restoration. Of all things, the, the story all the way back in Genesis with God making a world that's good and we're meant to be here. The Messiah is the one who's going to bring that promise to fulfillment. This Messiah, the Savior of the world, would himself come from Israel, would be a Jew. He'd be an Israelite. He would be a descendant of the patriarchs. He'd be a, a kinsman according to the flesh of every Jewish person. But don't you see, that's where the tragedy then is felt the most. Because whatever Israel's sordid past may have been, the idea that in the end, they would reject their own Messiah would be the worst possible thing they could have ever done. Why? Because 
For Israel to reject their Messiah would not simply be a matter of rejecting a human being sent by God to be their savior. If the Messiah is indeed Jesus of Nazareth, as Paul believes, then Israel's rejection of Jesus is more importantly a rejection of their own God. Feel the weight of it. Look at verse five. It is rather explicit. The Messiah, the Christ, is not just one who is ethnically related to Israel. He is also the embodiment of Israel's God. Paul calls him the God over all, Jew and Gentile alike. There you have it, explicit in the New Testament, full divinity of Christ. This was a shock to every Israelite. They expected the Messiah to be one of them, a Jew, a human. But Paul says, ha He's more than that. He's God, the full embodiment of the God you've been worshiping all along and the God over all, Jew and Gentile alike. So for Israel to now reject their own Messiah is tantamount to saying they've rejected their own God who happens to be the only true God and to put unbelieving Israel in the same fate as the pagan nations around them. The only thing left is to turn to an idol. Now, this is a tragedy then that you should not only be able to see, but you should also feel. But it's a tragedy that simply must be resolved. God simply has to keep his promise to Israel or there is no sure foundation for you, Christian. There is no hope. There is no assurance. Nothing if God has not kept his promise to the Jew first, to Israel. Romans 9 through 11 is written to help us hold on to hope for the salvation of Israel. And these chapters are written to show us just how it will be that, Romans eleven twenty six 26 again, all Israel will be saved. That's quite a statement. What does Paul mean by it? How do we get there? Well, we got a lot of sermons to unpack it all. But the passage this morning, ending in verse 5, suggests the solution to which we are heading. But let me first say two ways that are not the way we're heading. And I have to say this simply because it's in the air of Christianity for the last uh, at least couple hundred years. And so you've probably grown up with it or at least are aware of it. Some want to jump the gun here and suggest that what God has done is to essentially replace Israel with the church. They read passages like this and say, oh, all Israel will be saved. And elsewhere, Paul seems to suggest that Israel includes you and me, that we're part of Israel. So therefore, God has just scrapped the plan with Israel and brought us, the church, in its place. You can see, by the way, where a belief like that might be pointing. This belief, and if you hold this belief, I'm not about to say you you believe this too, but I'm just saying, this kind of belief that the church has embraced to some extent explains at least in part why Christians could be complicit in anti-Semitism. 
yeah, this is a real problem, by the way, not just for the Holocaust, not just for Whoopi Goldberg getting kicked off the view, but for you and me, if that's where our theology goes. While it is true that Paul has already shown throughout Romans that many of the privileges of Israel now rightly belong to you, Gentile. Whoa. Now rightly belong to everyone who is in the Messiah, regardless of their ethnicity. That's not the solution that we're looking for. As we've already suggested, if this is all that God has done, if all God has done is said, okay, well, they kind of messed it up. I'll try you guys. How's that going to turn out for you? If that's your belief, you are on shaky ground. Because can I just say it this way? We in the church are still awaiting the fulfillment of all that God has promised to us. And the problems that still reside in the church, yes, even in this one, are eerily similar to Israel's dabbling in idolatry. We got the same kind of problems Israel's had in the Old Testament. By the way, if you're thinking about joining us, welcome. You're joining a bunch of pagan idolaters that need rescue. So if you think, "Ah, I don't need the Israel thing, that's just, who cares about that? If you think that God just made a new promise with me, new covenant with me, if you're gonna go that route, then you are on shaky ground. How can you be sure? And some of you aren't. That God is not gonna also then scrap you and start over with somebody else. Got any assurance? If he did that with Israel, how do you know he's not going to do that to the church? Now, here's the second problem, the second wrong way to go. This is probably a little bit more closer to home. Many Christians, this is much more recent, by the way, like in human history, very recent, last 200 years or so. Many recent Christians have come up with a different solution here to the problem of Israel's unbelief. Many of us, I think, grew up with this, we're taught of you that Israel and the church are just running on separate tracks. And once the church is raptured out of the earth, then there'll be some kind of great revival that will take place among ethnic Israel. You know, that's the stuff that is the material for your Left Behind series and all that. And it's really a prevailing belief within evangelicalism in our country. So that's a new belief, by the way. And it's not the solution Paul gives in these chapters. If that's what Paul was thinking, if that's what Paul believed, he would undoubtedly have said that in Romans 9 through 11, and he doesn't. And by the way, it also undermines the greater theme of Romans, what Paul does go on to say after chapter 11 and 12 to 16 about how critical it is that Jews and Gentiles right now are unified, not running on separate tracks, but are right now together. If we keep those two groups distinct in the present age, we've missed the power of the gospel. So what then is the solution that Paul sees? And of course, we're gonna have to wait to see it unfold, but here at the end of verse five, at the moment of, great, of the greatest evidence for Israel's tragedy, the moment they are 
turning away from not just the Messiah, but from their own God, at that very moment come the seeds of hope. Because the Messiah that Israel has rejected just so happens to be God of all, blessed forever, amen. Isn't that strange how Paul writes there? At the very moment where he's expressing the greatest tragedy for Israel, they've rejected their own God. I mean, just to think of it. They have said no to the one who's made them all these great promises. At that very moment, Paul breaks into this doxology, into this praise. In other words, Israel's rejection of Messiah sets us up to consider and may in fact be the necessary point that we needed to get to all along that the promise right here is where it's finally going to break out. How so? How is it that in the moment of great, greatest tragedy, there are the seeds of hope? Well, Let me close by taking us back to verse three. As Paul peers into the shock and horror of Israel's rejection of their own God, and he says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. This, as you would probably suspect, has created a lot of controversy in the commentaries. It's sort of strange language, right? Whoever says, I could wish... I mean, that's, so does he actually wish? Does he almost wish, but not quite wish? Like all, all that, you're not interested in that. That's boring. Okay, well, at least do this. When Paul says that, if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll know where he sounds like somebody else in the Old Testament. Anybody remember? Good, huh? You read your Bible this way? He sounds like Moses. When Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments in his hand, sees Israel dancing before a golden calf. Remember that? This is the God who just delivered them out. You're reading through Exodus, you know, because by the time... You start your Bible reading plan and you kind of derail after chapter 20, you know? So, but you maybe get to chapter 32 and you got the 10 commandments. But the great people, these are the people that God's given his law to, this great envy of the world. And now they're dancing in front of this golden calf. And when that happens and Moses sees this, he's angry, but he goes before God And he says, Exodus 32, verse 32, please, O God, forgive their sin. And if not, you remember this? Blot me out of your book that you've written. What? I mean, if I was Moses, I wouldn't have said that. I mean, like, just, hey. In fact, God even suggests to Moses, I'm going to do away with them and I'll turn you into a great nation. And Moses says, no way. (laughs) No way. Why does he say that? Why does Moses say, God, you have to have mercy on your people. And if you're not going to do that, just do away with me. 
Why does he do it? Because he knows that the only hope that he has is in a God whose own honor was at stake in the fate of Israel, the people he'd made a promise to. God, you have to come through for your people because if you don't, how could I trust you anyway? Turn me into a great nation? What good will that do? If you're not the kind of God who can somehow break through the moment when your own people have turned their back on you, then there's no hope for anybody. This is where the gospel of Jesus shines the brightest. Because the gospel of Jesus does at least these two things, and I'm done. Number one, the gospel promise, what God has promised to us in the gospel is the promise that God made to Israel. I, I know, I know. That in the moment when you are dying, the promise that is there in the Bible that even death will not separate you from God, that you will be conscious with the Lord, disembodied, is a great comfort. Yes, we believe this. But there's a greater promise than that. And that's the promise that even if God doesn't heal you of that sickness you're dealing with right now or your loved one's dealing with, God has made a greater promise that even if you die, yet you will live. He will raise your body. That the life you live now in the flesh matters to God. It's good. He means for you to be in the flesh. So much so that in the flesh of his own son, he condemned sin so that you would be raised and live eternally with God in a world fully restored, beautiful, lovely. You can't imagine what God has prepared. This is a greater promise, and we Christians should be known for believing that. But second of all, and like and in the same way, this is the God who promises hope precisely when it appears there just can't be any hope. What's God going to do at the, at the golden calf? I mean, his people have just turned away from him, have just absolutely turned to an idol instead of the very God who, do, what hope could there possibly be? And that's why Moses says, if, if you're done with them, just be done with all of us. Wipe us all out. And Paul feels the same way. God has to come through for his people. And at the very moment when it looks like there's no one left and there's no hope for you left and everything that troubles you in this world, there's just no answer to, no solution to, the God of the Bible is the God who excels there. Romans 9 through 11 will point the way, show us how. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, more than anything, we need to be the kind of people who have our hope set on a firm foundation, not just wishful thinking that might suffice for a few years, decades even perhaps, but a foundation that lasts even when death comes calling. 
a foundation that knows that the God of the Bible is a God who's promised something spectacular. Death is the anomaly. Sin is not what it means to be a human. God made a world and intends for his people to dwell forever in communion with him here. How's it going to come to pass? How is it going to come to pass? We know that the answer will be found in the Messiah, in the one, maybe even the only one who's left to be Israel, true Israel. And yet, this will be enough. For in his vindication will be righteousness, justice, justification for all who are united to him. So we got a ways to go. You're going to have to help us. These are some pretty difficult chapters in Romans. But even if we can't grasp it all with our minds, we should feel this. It's from Israel that the Messiah has come. And this Messiah is God of all, blessed forever. We come to you, Jesus the incarnate Son of God. You're our only hope. Forgive our sins. Have mercy on us all. And bring the fullness of salvation soon, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.